Would you please take the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Uh, as you turn there to the chapter, we're actually going to begin in the last verse of chapter 22. The last verse and then go into chapter uh, 23. And so in the book of Acts, as we have been reading here through uh, this uh, record, we, in these moments here of imprisonment, let me describe the scene for us before we begin reading, uh, Paul's in moments of imprisonment, we might call these moments of injustice, uh, false accusation, mistreatment. Just remember, just the day prior to where we're coming to here now, he was beating, he was beaten, and the intent of the beating was to kill him. So I would imagine the beating was not a few slaps here and there, if the intent is to kill him. Now the question is, what helps Paul in this moment, let, let's try to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, what in this moment helps Paul to overcome a sense of defeat, discouragement, and perhaps even abandonment. Because that's what you would feel in this moment. Where is God? How come God has not intervened? How come God has not delivered? How come God will allow His choice servant to go through this? And so we will find in our text that I believe here there are two sources for Paul's joy. Now I use the word joy in the sense that the Lord says to him in verse 11, be of good cheer. <laughs> now this uh, may seem out of place that as Paul is imprisoned and falsely accused and is dealt a good deal of injustice in his life, that God would say be of good cheer. But let me remind you that those words come from the Lord. And I also use the word joy in the sense that when Paul, as he is imprisoned, writes the letter to the church at Philippi, and he writes this to them in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. And so joy, as I've mentioned this before, is not found in the absence of trouble, Joy is going to be found in the presence of something else, and in this text, someone else. There's two elements of this. I've said this quote before, that joy or peace is not found in the absence of trouble, but it's found in the presence of Jesus Christ. And no doubt it's true in this passage, but there's something else that Paul can find as a source of joy for him, and I want to preach on those two things. I'm not going to give them to you now. But let's stand together as we read the Word of God, Acts 23. We're going to begin in chapter 22, verse 30, so the last verse of chapter 22, and then read through chapter 23 and verse 11. And notice with me what the Word of God says, On the morrow, because he would have known... Now, he is the chief captain. Remember, he's the one that's taken Paul, and he saved him from the mob, and allowed him to testify before the mob, and he found out that he was a Roman citizen. And remember, the chief captain says that I, uh, I paid a great price for the freedom that I have. And Paul says, I was born free. He came from Tarsus. So he, verse 30, that's the chief captain, would have known the certainty, wherefore 
he was accused of the Jews. He loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priest and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the chief captain sets Paul before the Sanhedrin council there in Jerusalem, before the high priest and the council that's gathered there. And he wants to know what, what's the accusation against Paul. What is it? Remember the day before, it's just the mob. A lot of screaming, different accusations. Nobody knows what he's been accused of. A lot of confusion. He even thought he was the, Paul was the Egyptian. And he found out that no, actually he spoke Hebrew and so on. So chapter 23, verse 1, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Now just so we know, the smiting is a very intense word. It's not a slap on the mouth. Typically that was done with an instrument. You can maybe think about a bat or a rod just to strike him on the mouth. Then verse 3, then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. I want to bring your attention to verse 1. And Paul, as he stands before the Sanhedrin council, says those words, I have lived in all good conscience before God. I'd like to preach this morning on having a good conscience before God. A good conscience before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us from this passage to learn how we can have joy, how we can be of good cheer. Even when we are dealt an unpleasant set of circumstances. Help us to see where Paul uh, found his joy and his confidence in, and might we learn to live by those same rules as we conduct ourselves in this world. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Most of the time as I preach, I deal with the passage chronologically. Uh, go verse by verse. Uh, this time a little different in the presentation in that I'm going to deal with the middle part. And then I'm going to go back and deal with verse 1 and then verse 11. Because verse 1 and verse 11 are the two sources that I believe would be cause for Paul's joy in his unpleasant circumstances. But let me first deal with Paul's circumstances. As we see here the scene from the last verse of, of chapter 22, um, everybody's kind of calmed down. The day before has been um, a boisterous day, very loud mobs and soldiers intervening and uh, just a, a lot of things going on in the previous day that was chaotic. And, and so now the chief captain, who is assigned really in large part the peace of the city of Jerusalem, uh, the rule within the city of Jerusalem, he's going to try to try to make things right, to find out what's going on here, what led to this mob, what are the accusations against Paul, and, and what is going on. And so in verse 30 of chapter 22, that's exactly what happens. The chief captain brings Paul and convenes the Sanhedrin council and the chief priests and so on, and he, he, he sets Paul before them, and there's going to be a conversation between both Paul and the Sanhedrin council. Now at the onset, as we look at the scene here, Paul is going to begin to speak, and what he says here, as he mentions that he has uh, lived in good conscience before God until this day, it's going to prompt the high priest Ananias to command for Paul's mouth to be struck. And so here's the circumstances of Paul's of the scene here that we are reading. Uh, the chief captain, again, as he brings Paul, he wants to hear what the crimes uh, that Paul has done, uh, what has been committed. Now, there is this scene here between Ananias in verse 2 and 3, where he commands basically Paul's to be, to be struck in the mouth. And that's basically, he could have just said, be quiet, but he wants to make a gesture to quiet Paul. And Paul replies and says that you are striking me in an unlawful manner. And he says something really important in verse 3. He says, you're judging me after the law, but yet you're commanding me to be smitten contrary to the law. And he calls the high priest, the chief priest, uh, a whited wall. What, what is a whited wall? Uh, let me bring it. It's another way to say hypocrite. Uh, Jesus Christ, he called, if you remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, whited sepulchers. And we get a sense of what that expression means in Matthew 23, verse 7, when he says this, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And, he, and then he says this, For ye are like unto whited sepulchers. Now notice he says, you're hypocrites, you're like whited sepulchers. So the whited sepulchers refers to the hypocrisy. And here's where they're hypocrites, he says, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of uncleanness. So what does that mean when he says whited sepulcher? He says, look, you know how a sepulcher looks. 
on the outside, it's beautified. It looks beautiful. But we know what is inside a sepulcher. It's just a white sepulcher. There's a facade of beauty, but inside of it, there's only deadness. When he spoke to Ananias, when Paul spoke to Ananias in Acts chapter 23 and said, Thou whited wall, oh, the idea here is a wall can be decorated and beautified, but inside there's, it is hollow and empty, and that's where all the bugs are and all the, the filth accumulates. And so he says, On the outside you have this appearance with your garb that you look good and, and that you uh, seem to give a command, but you are a hypocrite. That's what Paul is saying. By the way, that, would a, that was, whether it was from Jesus Christ or from Paul, that was a stern rebuke. A stern rebuke. Now, as he insults Ananias, notice what the reply is from the people in verse 4. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Now, some people would say, well, wait a minute, how did Paul not know that Ananias was the high priest? As a matter of fact, when you look, there's two high priests during this time. Now, we know that there were only supposed to be one. And it seems that Paul probably knew who was the right priest, and Ananias, it was a son-in-law, father-in-law relationship there. There was no dual priesthood. There was one high priest. That's according to the Old Testament. And so there was some confusion there from Paul. But notice as they say to Paul, you're basically you've insulted, you've reviled, you've minimized the high priest. And notice Paul's reply as he gets rebuked. He says, this is quite shocking. He says, I, uh, verse 5, he says, I was not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And so evidently Paul, he didn't know that Ananias was the, was the high priest. And so the insult, he says, if I had known what he is saying, in effect, is if I had known that he was the high priest, I wouldn't have called them, and I would have said that to him, and I, have, I wouldn't have spoken to him in that manner. But notice verse 5. Then said Paul, or verse, uh, verse 5 and leading to verse 6, For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And so here Paul, he says, here is what this debate is about, but he does so in a, as, as best I can tell, in a very smart way. <laughs> Very smart way. And let me explain. The Bible tells us in verse 6 that he perceives something. He, he looks around and he perceives the scenes. And the Bible tells us that here is what he perceived. Here is what he observed in this, in this council. That there was one part of the group, part of the group of people that was there. One part were Sadducees. And then he looked over here and another part of the council were Pharisees. And what he is saying... In effect, here is going to cause a contention between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, our text indicates to us what the point of contention was. Notice with me verse 7. And when he 
had said, uh, so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So here is when he observes the group, there's two groups of people, and by the way, these were the two main, we might call them the tr- two largest sects within Judaism, the Sadducees, which were, we might call them the wealthy, and they are Sadducees simply because of wealth and lineage. But the Pharisees are another sect, and those are more uh, strict adherents to the law. We might uh, call the Sadducees, they would, refer, we, they would be referred to as Hellenizers, which is they liked to incorporate Greek philosophy into Judaism. And they rejected, as we see in our text, they rejected the idea of the resurrection. They rejected the idea of angels and of the spirit of man. They rejected some of those basic fundamental truths that we find in the word of God. Now, the Pharisees believed all those things. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. And they also believed in uh, the spirit of man. And so uh, there is now going to be a contention between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. By the way, before Jesus Christ comes on the scene, these were the two main groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they were constantly fighting with one another. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, they both get get together against against Jesus Christ. And here they both get together against Paul. Now Paul is very smart is that he is going to turn the attention away from him and he's going to cause a debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But at the same time, he does so with talking about an important subject because what he's he's saying at the end of verse 6 is this, I speak of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Well, he is referring to the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or that we, those who believe in Jesus Christ, might be raised. They didn't see as Jesus Christ himself being the uh, cornerstone of the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, uh, if you hold your place there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, because we have an indication as to how Jesus Christ dealt with both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And uh, notice with me uh, verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 23. And the word of God says, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked and asked him. So notice the Bible again says, The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, uh, but they know enough Bible to ask some questions. And they ask him the question, right, the law under Moses that if uh, a man had a wife, if that man died, if he had a brother then the brother was to marry the, uh, the wife. And uh, if that man died, the brother died, then if there was another brother, then the other brother would be married. And so the Sadducees said, all right, uh, here's a question about the resurrection. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? What brother? Whose wife is she going to be? That's the question. And... Um, I want us to see what Jesus says about this. Now, by the way, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're just trying to stump him. They're trying to to trick him. And here's what Jesus says to them in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, 
Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that, that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, it's interesting here. What we know is the, the Sadducees, here's what, what's the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Sadducees... Um, did not know the Scriptures. And we might even say that they did not believe the Scriptures. They were interested in large part in Greek philosophy. Their agenda was more political than religious. More political than religious. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they knew the Scriptures. They memorized, most of them would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. They could recite them. So they knew the scriptures, but as we notice then verse 34 of Matthew 22. Uh, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. That's the Pharisees. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. So a uh, lawyer, he's the smart of the bunch, and he's going to ask the question, try to stump Jesus Christ, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, here is how do we distinguish between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Sadducees, when confronted, Jesus says, You don't know the Scriptures. They did not know the Scriptures. And... The Pharisees, on the other hand, they knew the Scriptures, but they did not live by them. They did not live by them, and they did not interpret them correctly. Where they were focused on, really, the letter of the law, and they brought in the Torah, the, uh, some of the commentary from the uh, religious authorities in the sect of Phariseeism, and here is the interpretation of the law. So they misinterpreted the law, although they knew the Scriptures, but they did not live by it. The Sadducees did not believe the Scriptures, and neither did they know the Scriptures. So when we go back to Acts chapter 22, and Paul is in the midst of the Sanhedrin Council, you have the Sadducees who don't know the Scriptures, who don't believe the Scriptures, and the Pharisees who believe the Scriptures but don't live by them, but they are wholeheartedly adhering to truth from the Scriptures. And now they're fighting with one another. That's the scene in Acts chapter 22. Now, Paul obviously knew that. By the way, he himself, who was a Pharisee, his father was a Pharisee, he would be familiar with this debate, ongoing debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, with all of that, we see that the contention is going to become so great. Notice verse 9, what's going to happen. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part. So, you remember when you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? Scribes were under the order of Pharisees. They were part of that sect. They were not a separate group. They were Pharisees. Uh, so they were, now, not all Pharisees were scribes, but some Pharisees were scribes. And here the Bible says that the scribes that were of the Pharisees part arose and strove, saying... We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And so 
Now, notice, he hasn't gone into the details of Jesus Christ, but he's gone into the details of the resurrection, that he believes in the resurrection. And so now the Pharisees are happy because he's promoted the doctrine of the resurrection that they believe and that they hold to. And now the Sadducees and the Pharisees are going back. And now the Pharisees are taking Paul's side. They're agreeing with Paul. And so it it became uh, such a scene in verse 10. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down, pulled in pieces. So here's the scene that I think in my mind. On the one side, you had the Sadducees, and they're trying to pull in Paul to beat him up. And the Pharisees are pulling him on the other side, trying to save him. Because he's promoted the doctrine of the resurrection. And that's a scene. Now the chief captain is going to intervene, uh, deliver him, and bring him back to the castle. Now, uh, that, that's the circumstances. And look, uh, the circumstances he in, as I mentioned, uh, we may deem them as being unjust. He has been falsely accused. He's been mistreated. He should not be imprisoned. This is Paul's circumstances. This is the quandary that he finds himself in. But there are two things. Two things that Paul says or that happens to Paul that enables him to have joy in those circumstances. The first one is Paul's conscience. Notice verse 1. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now he says the same thing later in chapter 24 and verse 16. He says, And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. When he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1.12, he said this, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have our, had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you, word. And so he talks about the testimony of his conscience, his conscience that bears witness, his conscience that is void of offense. Here he says, I've sought to live in good conscience before God. What is the conscience? Well, the word conscience, you might say, here's the simple uh, idea. It's a two-part word. There's con and shuns is science. Con is with. Shuns or science is knowledge. So here's what the idea of the word means. It means with knowledge. With knowledge. That's the straightforward uh, idea of the word. Now, The conscience, if we might define it, we might say that the conscience is basically the internal self-knowledge or the judgment, internal judgment of right and wrong. It is a faculty that is within every man which basically decides goodness or corruptness in our actions and in our affections. The conscience basically instantly when we do something, it instantly either approves our actions or it condemns them. Now the conscience role though is throughout our lives. And let me put it this way, that first the conscience is active to first determine our duties before we proceed to act. But also secondly, the conscience is active in commending or condemning 
while our actions are being performed. And then thirdly, the conscience also judges our actions after they are performed. So the conscience involved in before we do something, we may ask ourselves, I wonder if that's right or wrong. When we are actually in the process of doing something, we, am I doing the right thing? Have you ever been doing something and then your conscience says you should stop doing that and you, you stopped while you were in the middle of doing something because your conscience says you should stop? And then sometimes afterwards you do something and the moment maybe your conscience didn't bear witness, but afterwards you say, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. That is the idea of the conscience. Let me give you an illustration. There is a follower of Pythagoras. Once he bought a pair of shoes from a cobbler, promising to pay him on a future day. That day came and he took the money. But finding the cobbler had passed away, he secretly rejoiced that he could retain the money and get a pair of shoes for nothing. But his conscience would not allow him to rest. And taking the money, he went back to the cobbler's shop, cast in the money and said, Go thy way, for though he is dead to all the world, yet he is alive to me. That's the conscience. I I can't live with myself. I've done something wrong. I must make it right, or I'm not going to do things that seems wrong to me. And so... The conscience is, we might say, uh, the scene when, you remember those religious people brought the woman who was caught in the act of adultery before Jesus Christ, and uh, their conscience was fine until Jesus said, well, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. The idea is, when you had a witness in the Jewish system, when you brought witness against someone, you as the witness were the first one to cast the stone, and then everybody got involved in casting the stone on the accused. And so he says, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the Bible says, and they, being convicted by their own conscience, left. The oldest to the youngest. So the conscience says, is, is the, the faculty that is within man that says, stop it. You're guilty. You've done wrong. Or don't do it. You're about what you're about to do, or while you're doing it, stop, or after you've done it, you've done the wrong thing. Make it right. That's that's the conscience. Now, I do want to say here that the conscience, there is a warning here, that the conscience cannot be, cannot be the leading principle in the life of the Christian. The conscience cannot be the leading principle in the life of the Christian. You've heard people say today, well, just follow your conscience. Uh, We have to be careful with that. Why? Well, later when Paul gives his testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26 verse 9, he talks about his time as a persecutor, and here's what he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I thought with myself that I was doing God a favor. By the way, Jesus said in John 16, 2, He says, They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God a favor. You see, Paul, before he was a believer, I believe he he acted according to his conscience. He thought he was doing right. He thought he was doing God a service, but he was doing wrong. So you can't always follow your conscience. Now, Uh, Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Just a few pages there after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 2. Let me show you here what the conscience is involved in. 
Uh, Romans chapter 2, and notice verse 15 with me. Let's read verse 14 and 15. Romans 2, 14 and 15. The Bible says, And when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, here it is, also bearing witness. And what does it say? And their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Here's what the conscience does. It, it, it either accuses or it excuses. That's, what the, that's the thoughts of the conscience. It either accuses or it excuses. And so when Paul was involved in being a persecutor, you know what his conscience did? It excused his sin. He thought he was right with God because by his conscience he was doing the right thing. His conscience was wrong. So it can excuse, but it can also accuse. And so there's a, that's the thoughts. The thoughts, uh, we might say, how would you describe the conscience? I would say it's the thoughts that are within us that either accuse or excuse. That's the conscience. Now, the reason why I say that we cannot follow the conscience is because the conscience can be, according to Titus 1.15, can be defiled. We also should not follow the conscience because according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, the conscience can be seared with a hot iron. The idea is it can become so hard that you do the wrong thing and when you used to think when you were involved in a certain behavior, let me just give you an illustration. People who live in sin today in our, uh, in our society, people, they, uh, live, they shack up with one another before marrying and at first they may feel like, well, I don't know if that is right. But as they stay and remain in that relationship, when they live together before they're married and have uh, an intimate relation before they're married, that they excuse it. But then uh, their conscience at first says, you, you shouldn't be doing that. You're guilty. You're guilty. And the longer they live that way, then the conscience gets to the place where the conscience becomes seared. It becomes hard. It becomes silent. So you can't just follow your conscience because it might be that the conscience might become defiled. And we might say that Paul, while he was persecuting the church and his thoughts were excusing his behavior, his conscience had been defiled. Although he thought he was serving God. So we should not follow the conscience. It is imperative that believers seek to cultivate, as Paul did, a conscience that is void of offense. But here's the key that he says. A good conscience toward God. You know, people say today, I'm going to, they go to the psychiatrist and say, let me teach you how you can live with yourself. No. You see, often they may excuse, the psychiatrist today will excuse your behavior. They will blame your behavior on somebody else. What they're doing is they're defiling often. They're defiling the conscience. We should not live and listen to the standards of man. And so that's why I said that the conscience cannot be the guiding principle in Christian life. What is the guiding principle? The Word of God. That's the guiding principle. Now, by the way, when the Word of God is the guiding principle, then the conscience comes and agrees with the Word of God. And then we, what we 
excuse or accuse the conscience excuses or accuses based upon our behavior in accordance to the word of God now by the way I won't go there for a second because this is not a message just on the on the conscience but in the book of Hebrews he talks about the conscience has been of the believer has been purged and so when you become saved you are given I believe a new conscience that operates that is guided by the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so, how can Paul in this moment, in this moment, how can he have joy? Because he has a good conscience toward God. He's operated and he has followed God unto the best of his abilities. He, he's lived a life that is void of offense toward God and toward men. And so we all have to ask ourselves that question. Do I have a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward man? By the way, that affects many things in our lives. Good conscience. How are we living our lives? You see, we, we all have thoughts. And I believe that's where the conscience uh, inhabits our thoughts. And we know how that goes. We, we do something and maybe initially we, we know we ought not to do it. And then all of a sudden we have some thoughts. And, and then we, we go through a battle of accusing and excusing. That's the battle of our thoughts. Accusing, you're doing wrong. No, you're doing right. No, you're doing wrong. No, you're doing right. That's why I said the conscience cannot be the guiding principle. Because two thoughts arise in the conscience. Accusation, excusing. The Word of God has to be the guiding principle. And then the conscience cooperates with the Word of God to either accuse or excuse us. That's why sometimes we even say, well, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm doing right. Then we go to the Word of God. So that one, we can have, so that our, by our conscience we can be excused and say, no, I, I believe I've done right. I believe my heart is sincere uh, with God that I've operated under the dictates of the Word of God and my conscience is clear. By the way, no doubt that would provide a great source of relief and joy for Paul because he's not in this place because of anything he's done. He's not in this place because he's been disobedient to God. He's not in this place because he has had uh, ill intent for the Jews. He has just tried to preach the gospel to them. And so he has lived in good Conscience. By the way, if you don't live in good conscience, you can't have joy. Why? Because there's that constant guilt. And if you don't take care of the guilt, the Bible says you can become seared, hard, and there's no joy where there's hardness. There is no joy where there is hardness or defilement. That's the first source I believe that Paul can have joy in those circumstances. What? would be the source of encouragement for Paul in these circumstances, a good conscience before God. But the second source is this, Paul's comfort. Notice with me, verse 11. He says, and um, the night following, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also of me at Rome. There's three things here in Paul that would bring Paul comfort. First of all, Paul would find strength and comfort in the Lord's presence. I like that uh, the Bible says the night following, you think, oh, Paul has been abandoned. He's by himself. He is dealing, he has been dealt with a, a series of injustices, of 
accusations and look, he seems to be rotting away by himself and where is God? He's standing right there. He's standing right there. The Bible says, the Lord stood by him. Now we know, we know what the Bible says that when Jesus Christ has sent it up to heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God. And the only time in the, in the book of Acts, as far as I can recall, that you find Jesus Christ dealing and attending to those who are dealing with difficulties as Stephen and Paul, Jesus is standing, not sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so the Lord is with Paul, and Paul no doubt finds great comfort in the Lord's presence in that moment. By the way, it's a combination here of Paul. He can rest at night, he can sleep at night. Why? Because he has a good conscience toward God, and because God is with him. God is with him. But notice there's not only strength and comfort in the Lord's presence, there's also strength and comfort in the Lord's words. See, that's the wonderful thing about the Lord, that He is not just there with us, but He also speaks to us. Notice what he says. Be of good cheer, Paul. Now, the expression here, be of good cheer, basically means, Paul, uh, take courage. Take comfort. Well, no. Uh, Pastor, he is in a comfortless situation. Let me encourage you today. There are no comfortless situations for Christians. There are no comfortless situations for Christians. And so he says, be of good cheer. Take comfort, take courage. That's the words. By the way, every time that you find the Lord speaking, either to Paul or coming to speak to somebody who is discouraged, who is being attacked, uh, somebody who is uh, overwhelmed by his circumstances. I want you to know that the words of the Lord are not these uh, elongated sermons like your pastor preaches all the time. It's very short words, a few words typically. But by the way, that's all that the Lord needs to give for Paul to find comfort. Be of good cheer, Paul. But there's a third source of strength and comfort Not only there's strength and comfort in the Lord's presence, there's strength and comfort in the Lord's words, but there's also strength and comfort in the Lord's will. Do you notice what he says? Be of good cheer, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Now we know what the road is going to be. He's going to go to Rome as a prisoner. So here it's not. It's not, hey Paul... Be, be of good cheer, I will deliver you tonight. That's not the words. Be of good cheer tomorrow. And by the way, in the case of Peter, we, we saw that early on in Acts. There's going to be an earthquake. The door is going to open. Like, remember Paul had seen that in Philippi? You remember when he, there was the earthquake and the door was open and, and the, the, the Roman soldier was going to kill himself and he intervened and man, God did miraculous things. And here he didn't say, hey, Paul, uh, you're going to be delivered. That's not what God said. But God did tell Paul what his will was. Just like you've testified, you are in this predicament because of your testimony of of me. That's what you've done in Jerusalem, and you are in this predicament. And I want you to know that the same thing that you've done that brought trouble upon you, the same thing that you've done that brought trouble upon you, you're going to continue to do in Rome. 
This, Paul, is not the end. By the way, Paul said in Philippians 1.12, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning... Uh, that the, uh, uh, understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. We read later in Philippians 4.22, he says, And all the saints salute you, chiefly they who are of Caesar's household. Well, evidently, he had testified in Rome, and there were people in his household. Now, that could have been two options. Either Nero's family members, or people who were in the palace that were servants and soldiers, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of the testimony of Paul in Rome. And so Paul finds great comfort, is able to have joy in these present circumstances because of two things. Two things. A good conscience toward God and the presence of the Lord. When God makes himself known to Paul, brings words of comfort and strength, and tells Paul about his will moving forward. See, that's the wonderful thing about God. When He comes to us in difficult circumstances, He helps us to understand, I'm not done with you. You may be going through a difficulty right now, but I am not done with you. My will for your life is going to continue. Let me finish with this illustration. A man talked about a dream he had. He said, I saw in a dream that I was in the celestial city and thought when and how I got there, I could not tell. I was one of, uh, it was one of a, I was one of a great multitude which no man could number from all countries and peoples and times and ages. Somehow I found that the saint who stood next to me had been in heaven for uh, the last uh, uh, 1860 years. Uh, Who are you? I said to him. Uh, I said he uh, was a Roman Christian. I lived in the days of the Apostle Paul. I was one of those who died in Nero's persecution. I was covered with pitch and fastened to the stake, and they set me on fire to light up Nero's garden. How awful, I exclaimed. No, he said, I was glad to do something for Jesus. He died on the cross for me. The man on the other side then spoke. I have been in heaven only a few hundred years. I came from an island in the South Seas. Iromanga, John Williams, a missionary, came and told me about Jesus, and I too learned to love him. My fellow countrymen killed the missionary, and they caught and bound me. I was beaten until I fainted, and they thought I was dead, but I revived. The next day they, uh, they uh, knocked me on the head, and they cooked me and ate me. How terrible, I said. No, he answered, I was glad to die as a Christian. You see, the missionaries have told me that Jesus was scourged and crowned with thorns for me. Then they both turned to me and said, What did you suffer for him? Or did you see that uh, what you had, uh, or did you sell what you had for the money which sent men like John Williams to see, the, uh, to see that heathen people might Learn about Jesus. And I was speechless. And while they both were looking at me with sorrowful eyes, I awoke and it was a dream. But I lay on my soft bed awake for hours, thinking of the money I had wasted on my own pleasures, or my extra clothing and costly car and many luxuries. And I realized that I did not know what the words of Jesus meant. If any man will come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, there's two ways to really look at the quandary that Paul is in. You can look and say it's unjust, and it is, isn't it? He's been falsely accused, and he has. It's not fair. Doesn't God know? Has he not been faithful to God? Has he not served? God faithfully answered to all those questions, or you can see it as a continuation of doing the will of God, of being faithful to the Lord, having a good conscience, and being of good cheer, because the Lord is with him. And so, take courage and find strength in those two things, a good conscience before God and the presence of the Lord.